verses 1 to 13. Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. What is love? Before we can show love, we must know it. And before we dive into this passage, will you pray again with me? Father, thank you for giving us your word that we might know you, and that we might know you beyond a shadow of a doubt, because you, what you say is true and real. We can search your word, and we can know that this is what you've told us, and we can believe in it, and we can hold on to it as true. Thank you for proving your love to us through your word and through your son, Jesus Christ. And I ask, Lord, that you teach us how to reflect that better to the world around for your honor and your glory. As I'm up here, Lord, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. I don't want to talk academically about love today. I did that a little bit last week, and that was fine. Today, I don't want to do it. Today, I want to talk about Jesus. I want to talk about who Jesus is. One day, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray. He prayed all night. He had an amazing experience up there. Elijah appeared to him. Moses appeared to him, spoke to God. Great spiritual experience. And then Jesus came down from the mountain after that night of prayer and this spiritual high, and he is accosted by his, the rest of his disciples and apostles and the religious leaders all arguing about who had the most faith and who didn't have the most faith. And there's a whole bunch of fingers pointed at each other. Turns out that a man had a son who was possessed by a demon. And that demon was taking that son and throwing that son into fire, trying to kill him. Throwing that son into large pools of water, trying to kill him. Over and over again, this demon is trying to kill this young son. And it should not be. We all say that's horrible. Shouldn't happen. The man takes the son to Jesus' disciples and said, heal this boy. Cast this demon down. They tried, they couldn't. Next one tries, it couldn't. Next one tries, it couldn't. And they started pointing their fingers and saying, why don't you have more faith? Why don't you have more of the faith? And teachers, the religious leaders of that time were saying, oh, you can't do that because you're all followers of Satan. And there's a whole bunch of arguing going on. And Jesus looks at the crowd and looks at the dad. And he says, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay up with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And right then, Jesus casts the demon out of the boy. Throughout Jesus' ministry of 33 years on this earth, Jesus was faced by unbelief, by hypocrisy, by lies, by unbelievable sin. And those 33 years that he lived on this earth, he never wiped his hands of humanity. Never did. Jesus was long-suffering, continually showing love, continually taking time to teach. 
If I was Jesus living here on this earth for those 33 years, I would have stopped one moment and said, you know, God, the world could use a little less Pharisees. Could you take a couple out? Those are the ones that deserve to die. Take them. But he didn't. He even went out of his way to eat with these Pharisees and spend time with them. He was patient when he was on earth. One day in his patience, Jesus is walking through Jericho and crowds are lining the street. Everyone wanted to see Jesus. Everyone wanted to to have him smile at them. Maybe he would actually talk to you. Boy, that would make your day. That would make your week. So they line up across Jericho as he's walking through. And Jesus stops one day in that packed crowd. He stops and he looks up at a tree. And he says up in that tree, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. When he does that, all the crowd around him, this place was packed. So people heard it. Hundreds of people heard him say this. And they all started grumbling and muttering and saying, this guy's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Why would he do that? Because Zacchaeus was not a good man. He wasn't. If you've gone to Sunday school, you might have heard his story. He was a Jew who sold himself to the corrupt Roman system as a tax collector. Number one, Jews didn't do that. Roman government's corrupt. No one wants to work for it. If you're a good Jew, if you care about your country, you didn't work for the Romans. But Zacchaeus did because he wanted money. Not only did he sell himself to the corrupt Roman system, but he took the every opportunity he could to cheat his fellow Jews and pocket the excess. He was a scoundrel, to put it lightly. I'm sure you can translate everything that Zacchaeus did into today's society, and you know someone like that. Or you don't want to know someone like that. Bottom line is, you would not like Zacchaeus. Not only would you not like Zacchaeus, but you would not trust anyone that willingly spent time with him. And Jesus says, I want to spend time with you, Zacchaeus. In his mercy, he did not give Zacchaeus what he deserved. And in his grace, he gave Zacchaeus what he didn't deserve. Jesus held back the wrath of God and showed this wicked agent of a corrupt government system kindness. I think about Jesus, not just talking with Zacchaeus all his life, but at the end of his life, hanging on the cross, looking out at those who had driven nails into his hands and feet, hearing the hurtful mocking of the crowd, and he says to these people, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus was kind here on earth. Jesus never begrudged anyone when he was here, their status or their honor. Everyone that he was with, even those you didn't think deserved honor, he treated equally, and he never felt threatened or never threatened. One day, a Roman soldier, a centurion, again, corrupt government official. This is someone who did the work of the corrupt government official. He killed innocent people. This centurion sent for Jesus because his servant was dying. And Jesus could have looked at this guy and said, you don't deserve my kindness. You've committed such atrocities. And you don't deserve it because you're a Roman. Your status should not have any, I shouldn't do anything with you. But Jesus says to the crowd around, he says, I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. He talks about this corrupt person of Rome, and says he has more faith than everyone else in Israel he's ever been around. When Jesus lived on this earth, he didn't have much. He traveled. Sometimes he ate in houses of those who were rich. Sometimes he ate in houses of those who were poor. Other times he ate as he was walking on the road. Sometimes he didn't eat at all because he didn't have the food to eat. He told one man, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And Jesus was okay with that lifestyle. He was not here to climb a social ladder or gain wealth. He was here for another reason. From an earthly perspective, the climax of Jesus' ministry was a week before he died when he showed the world, this is why I came. 
He told his disciples to go get a donkey. And they did. And then they put the cloaks on his donkey. And Jesus rode that donkey into Jerusalem. People started whispering and saying, oh, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. And they grabbed their coats and laid it on the road. Other people grabbed palm branches, laid them on the road. Other people didn't lay the palm branches on the road. They waved them, and they were all shouting. There was a whole bedlam, and they said, this verse that's coming up, hopefully, ah, it, it's, not, it's not being happy with me. <laughs> they said, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. They're all saying, the king is coming. The king is coming. It's Jesus. He's our king. People are lining up to greet Jesus. If it happened today, they'd be lining up to get his autograph and their picture taken with him because that's what you do with celebrities. And so everyone was lining up to get Jesus' autograph and have their picture taken with him. And some high-ups from another nation comes and wants to cut in the line and say, hey, disciples, I want to get Jesus' autograph. I want to have a picture taken with him. And in that moment, in the height of Jesus' popularity, as he is boosting up the scales internationally as a popular figure, he says, now my soul's troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I've glorified it and will glorify it again. Jesus did not come for his own glory. He didn't come to say, look at me. Look what I can do. Follow me. He came to point people to the Father. The Father. And to provide a way that people might come and know the Father, the eternal God. This path that Jesus took required humility. He is the eternal Son of God, existing in a state and place of perfection outside of time from eternity to eternity. He is called the creator and sustainer of all things, living in heaven in a place that we cannot describe because we cannot fathom the perfection and the purity of such a place. And this eternal son of God who's lived forever in that place of perfection willingly chose to leave that perfection, willingly chose to leave all those rights and empty himself of everything, being born of a virgin girl, his first bed being a manger, laying in prickly hay. As he lived, he was an outcast among his own people. He was forced to be homeless endure ridicule and physical pain, and he didn't have to. He could have stayed up in heaven and said, sorry, I don't want to go through it, and he'd be justified. But he willingly said, I'm not going to live according to what I deserve. I'm going to come down and live with people who do not deserve me. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, he says, who being in very nature God, he's speaking of Jesus Christ, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The ultimate humility, being stripped naked, bare for the world to see, dying the death of the worst possible criminal imaginable, having done nothing, and he's lying there, up there. Everyone's screaming, he deserves this, when he didn't. And Jesus never said anything in return. Never. All throughout his life, never puffing himself up, continually reaching out for the good of those around him. Early in Jesus' ministry, he sat on a mountain trying to teach his disciples this own, this, this lifestyle that he is having. And his disciples gathered around him on this mountain, and he taught them about the ways of God. And he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus takes all those beatitudes as we talk about them, and he builds on them through Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7, and he explains how practically to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. He said all throughout this, you have heard it said, your culture tells you all these things, but I say to you, instead of what your culture says, Israel, this is how you're supposed to live. He's trying to convince his followers that the morality of their culture was not enough, but God was calling them to a higher standard in which to live. He expected his followers to live according to the morality of heaven, not the morality of earth, to not bring disgrace, embarrassment, or shame on Jesus or his follower, because that was Jesus' life, not to bring embarrassment, shame, or grief on his own follower, father. On the night before Jesus was betrayed, his disciples prepared a meal for them all to eat together. Normally, when each guest arrived, the servant would wash each person's feet. That's what you did. But that night, there was no servant. None at all. The disciples came in and said, what's going on? Where's the servant to wash my feet? There was only Jesus. And one by one, Jesus takes those dirty feet in his hands and he washes them drying each foot with the towel that was wrapped around his waist. And his disciples were shocked and a little appalled because that's not what a master does. That's not what the big guy does. And Jesus explains to them and says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash each other's feet. I've set you an example so that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus did not seek his own good when he was here on earth. He sought their good even if it meant doing something as disgusting as washing someone else's feet. Now, at this time, as John's writing his gospel and he tells the the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, John records something very interesting in his gospel. He says, this was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus did not come in order to make himself feel better. He did not come to boost his own image. He did not come to make a name for himself. He came that he might seek the good of humanity, to serve, to die, that others might live. But he did care about truth when he was on earth. Yes, he loved people. He was not self-seeking, but he did care about truth. There are several times that Jesus might have uh, lost his temper. At least if we were him, we would have lost our temper. It could have been the time when the Pharisees said, you are doing all the miracles you're doing because you are a follower of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And you have that demon in you. That's why you were able to do these things. Jesus didn't get angry when they called him that. He could have gotten angry when the disciples over and over and over again showed their lack of faith or their lack of understanding, but he never got angry angry with his disciples. Perhaps when James and John uh, came to him and said, hey, Jesus, let's call down fire from heaven on this Samaritan town who has refused to allow you to come through and visit. He didn't get angry at James and John for showing their anger. No, he doesn't. None of that raises anger. There's two times in scripture when Jesus got angry. When the Pharisees were stubborn enough to act deliberately against God, forcing people around them to follow the Pharisees' rules instead of following God himself. That made Jesus angry. A man walks into a synagogue one day. He has a shriveled hand. Uh, And it's the Sabbath. This is the day the Jews have set aside to worship God. No one's supposed to do any work whatsoever on the Sabbath. You are supposed to focus only on God. And so this man walks into the synagogue with this shriveled hand. And everyone wonders, is Jesus going to heal this man? Because that would be considered work. What's he going to do? Is he going to heal on the Sabbath and break the law of God? Is he going to do nothing on the Sabbath and break the law of God? Or is he going to heal? Heal on the Sabbath, break the law of God, do nothing on the Sabbath, keep the law of God, or not be merciful. There you go. That's how it works. 
And Jesus asks the Pharisees, he says, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or kill? And they remain silent. And the scripture says that Jesus got angry at their stubborn hearts. They were more concerned about their rules than doing good in the sight of God. That was at the start of Jesus' ministry when he got angry at the time. Towards the end of Jesus' ministry, Jesus goes into the temple, temple courts. And he sees all these people buying and selling in the temple. The temple was turned from a house of prayer to a marketplace. And there is profit at the expense of worshiping God. And Jesus enters the temple courts, thrives out all who are buying and selling there. He overturned the temp- tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he says to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. John, in his account of this, tells us that Jesus made a whip and he used it on the merchants. This isn't the calm, compassionate Jesus we often hear about. He got angry. Most of his ministry, he never flew off the handle. He patiently taught others. He called them to repentance. But in the short times when it was necessary to get angry because of the desecration of what is holy, he got angry. One day... His disciples were angry. Someone had offended them. It wasn't that someone had desecrated what was holy, like when Jesus got angry. They were just angry because someone had offended them. And Peter comes to Jesus and says, Hey, Jesus, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answers, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven. He then tells a parable about a man who was forgiven a great debt and then refused to forgive a smaller debt. When I hear that story, I can't help reflecting on the cross. Jesus hanging there, my sins, your sins on his shoulders. And he's not shaking his fist at us. He's not yelling at us for all the sins that are dragging him forcibly down to the grave. No, he's not. Because in Christ, every sin that we have ever committed, past, present, future, are not held against us. They're not. The psalmist writes this, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. For as as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He removes our sins. He doesn't hold them against us. He didn't look at the disciples when he was hanging there on the cross and say, you know, you know what you did when he lived his life and the disciples showed their lack of faith again. He didn't say, you did this 37 other times this year. When we live our life, he isn't sitting in heaven going to the divine library and saying, "Uh uh-huh, oh yeah, here's the knot. It goes to a sage. You see, you see this? Back in June 21st, 1993, you did the same thing. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't say that. He keeps no record of wrongs. That being said, he never lets sin fester in a person. Jesus was in the temple courts, and a woman was dragged in front of him. She had been caught in idolatry, adultery, caught in adultery. And the law says that you're supposed to stone this person who's caught in adultery. And the Jews knew that Jesus was merciful. They did this as a test. This woman was caught in adultery. She definitely did it. They had all the proof. Drags in front of Jesus. And they knew that Jesus had dinner with prostitutes and tax collectors, the scum of the earth, the the people that good people aren't supposed to spend time with. He showed mercy. And they wanted to trick him. They said, is Jesus going to show mercy to this woman caught in adultery and break the law of Moses? Or is he going to say, yes, she deserves to die and prove to the world that he is not this compassionate, merciful person that he claims to be. And he doesn't say anything. Whenever all these eyes are staring at him, he doesn't say anything. Instead, he kneels on the ground and starts tracing in the dirt. We have no idea what he wrote. No idea. Scripture doesn't tell us. All we know is that he wrote in the dirt. And then he straightens up and says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And the Pharisees looked at each other. And they left. Because Jesus had convicted them about their sin. 
He doesn't allow any sin to fester, but he brings conviction to everyone in their sin. He started with the Pharisees. And then Jesus turns to the woman and says, woman, did any of the one condemn you? And she says, no one, sir. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Yes, he showed compassion, but he still would not allow sin to fester in her. He said, leave it. Leave it behind. He did not delight in evil. Throughout his life, instead of delighting in evil, he proclaimed the truth of God. He called sinners to repentance, to pursue the kingdom of God, and he only provided one way for that to happen. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When Jesus was dragged before Pilate to be crucified, Jesus tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You're a king then, Pilate asks him. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came to the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate retorted. Jesus came to proclaim truth to everyone, to hold it up without fear, even if that truth caused him to be crucified and to stare that crucifixion in the face. He withheld truth, with upheld truth. Jesus had a tenacity while on the earth, buoyed by an absolute confidence in the future that enabled him to live in every circumstance and continually pour himself out on behalf of others. The author of Hebrews writes about Jesus and says that he is the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning at shame, and sat down at the throne of God. In the week before his death, he knew what was going to come. He did, and he prayed as we read. He said, my soul is troubled. Now what shall I sell you? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very hour, this time of crucifixion, that I came to this earth. His entire life was ticking down the seconds until his crucifixion, until his last agonizing breath. And as those seconds ticked down, he, he poured out his life in love, knowing that the reason he came to earth was to empty his life because of love. It wasn't easy. None of us, if we were staring death in the face, would think that it was easy. He, when the night before he was betrayed, he staggered up the Mount of Olives. His disciples were yawning and wanting to sleep. And while they slept, he cried out in fear to the Father and said, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed even more earnestly. The strength of the angel wasn't enough. And as he prayed more earnestly, his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. He went through hardship. Hardship that we cannot even imagine. But he held on tenaciously because of love holding on in every circumstance to pour himself out for others. He didn't do this because he thought that we were good, because he believed the best about everyone and everything. He is God. He knows who we are. He knows our sin. He knows what we deserve every single day. He knows we are not worthy of his love. But he is the one who defines faith and hope. He is never faithless. And in him, hope is never lost. Because of his faithfulness, because he is an assured provider of what is promised, his love is never ceasing. Paul writes, Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 to 39, he says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any prowess, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. On the Sunday after Jesus' death, Mary Magdalene is standing in the garden crying because she had lost her best friend. The one she placed all her hope on, the one who brought her joy and peace and happiness and he, she had seen him die the most horrible death imaginable. She had been there as his body was wrapped up and prepared for burial. She had been there when the stone was rolled over the tomb. And now she was standing there at his tomb, grief-stricken, 
Angels had already appeared to the other woman. She was there. She heard it. How Jesus had risen from the grave and he was going to go ahead of them onto Galilee and they're going to meet him there. Peter and John, Peter and John had gone to the tomb, had seen it empty. They had run off to tell the other disciples. And Mary's still there in grief because she doesn't believe yet that Jesus is actually alive. She doesn't have the faith. And in the face of her lack of faith, in the face of her hopelessness, Jesus appears to her. And all he says compassionately is he walks up to her and he says, Mary, that's it. And she believed. He took the time to show her that he knew her and loved her as her savior, her individually. The same as he does for every single person here individually. During this time, Peter is beating himself up because in in the time of Jesus' need, he says to everyone around, I don't know that man because he's afraid that he's going to be crucified too. Not only does he say, I don't know that man, but he calls down curses from God. He says all things that a good Christian shouldn't say in that moment just to prove that he is not a follower of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus dies. And he's hopeless. He says, what have I done for my friend? What did I do? I am worth nothing. And Jesus meets Peter on the seashore. And he lets Peter know Let's Peter know that he's chosen him to lead his church. The amazing grace of God. In the face of our faithlessness, in the face of our hopelessness, Jesus reaches out with faith and hope that never end. Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 3, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Like Christ on the cross, love endures scorn, failure, ingratitude. And at the end, shines out the light of Easter, for love never ends. This is my God. This is your God. This is who Jesus is and who has proven himself over and over and over and over again. We could take 1 Corinthians 13, and instead of reading, love is patient, love is kind, etc., 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 we could just read, Jesus is patient, Jesus is kind, which is what we just did. Jesus shows us love completely, completely, beyond a shadow of a doubt. We know this is who he is. Something to note, just because I have to insert some sort of academic something in here. A lot of translations give us adjectives in this, such as patient and kind, but the words in the original language are verbs, because love is an action. And Jesus proved his love over and over and over again by his actions. Having that example, we are called to show Jesus. If we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, and we say we are followers of him, we are called to show him. So instead of placing Jesus' name in 1 Corinthians 13, which is very appropriate because he is our example, Paul urges us to put our names there because we are called to live this out every single day. We're supposed to be able to say Peter is patient, Peter is kind, and go on down the list, and you can put your name there. Can we do that? Can we do that? I encourage you to try But if we try, does our voice catch in our throats? Do we start shifting uncomfortably in our seat because we realize that though we are called to reflect our Savior, we are not doing it? We're not. 
It's not human to live these things. It's not human to show these things. And so often we do, and so often we justify that and say, oh, it's because of what I'm going through. It's because of what I'm dealing with. It's because of, the, it's because of this, it's because of that. Paul says, no. Look what Jesus went through and how he proved his love in spite and because of what he went through. Are we doing that too? I'm grateful that Jesus gives us an opportunity to repent, to turn to him and say, you know what, I'm not doing well. In fact, I'm not doing this at all. There's some days we might go to 1 Corinthians 13 and say, you know what, I might be hitting one of these. And we can turn to Jesus and say, I'm sorry. I'm supposed to reflect you and I'm not. And he gives us grace in that moment. But not only does he give us grace as we confess to him, but he gives us strength to turn to someone near us, the person we hurt, and to say, you know what? Spouse, child, sibling, coworker, please forgive me. I call myself a Christian, but I'm not acting like it in the most fundamental way possible. Please forgive me for my hypocrisy. When we do that, and air that to God and to the person we hurt, that's when the Holy Spirit starts working in us, showing us how to reflect Jesus. I find it interesting how similar 1 Corinthians 13 is with Galatians chapter 5 that we call the fruit of the Spirit. It says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Love edifies us, love edifies the church because it releases the power of the spirit in our lives and in our churches. May Jesus equip us to live his character in our lives every single day, no matter what we're going through. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace and your goodness. Thank you that you are the God who proved your love to us by sending your son to live in our pain, to experience our pain and our hurt, our despair, to be among us in our depravity, and to prove that love over and over and over again. Lord, we do not deserve your love, and we're so grateful for it. Teach us to show that love to others, that others might know that you are the good God who does things well, that you're the one who gives hope and peace You're the one who who accepts us no matter what and it's proven you'll bring us to that place where there'll be no more sorrow or tears, sickness, death, or sin. And we say even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But until then, Lord, force us to live a life that shows you. Thanks, Father. Psalm 69, 34 says, Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. Let's stand and we'll close with all the people said amen.
Thanks for coming out and worshiping with us this Sunday. Hope you can join us for the Art of Parenting Sunday School class right after service. We'll start it a little bit later, but we'll get you done on time at the end. Uh, Sunday School for all ages downstairs, and then Art of Parenting up here. Until we meet again, whether it is for Sunday School, or next week, or when Christ gloriously calls us home, we get to be all together with him and all the saints. May we live every moment reflecting his love to the world around us, that people might know.